You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Votes. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. We understand that the Jewish votes is, and the Jewish voter is not monolithic, that there are several issues at stake in November's election, issues that are guided and influenced by the ethics and values of our Torah and our tradition. Each episode focuses on a specific issue at stake and is a conversation with Jewish communal leaders about what our community believes our response should be regarding this issue, November's election. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the gun violence epidemic in America and how the Jewish community should respond. I'm privileged to welcome this to this conversation, Dorian Karp, Senior Advocacy and Policy Manager at Jewish Women International, and Rabbi Menachem Creditor, the Pearl and Ira Meyer Scholar Residence at UJA Federation of New York, and founder of Rabbis Against Gun Violence. Welcome, Dorian. Welcome, Menachem. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Jesse. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I wanted to begin by focusing on statistics. Over 30,000 people are killed in America every year as a result of gun violence. Well, we make up just a small fraction of the world's population. We make up a large portion of gun deaths on this planet. Why do you think that is? Sure, so I'll take it. Um, You know, the 30,000 number feels really large, but when you break it down, it's about 100 people a day right, in the United States that are, that are dying from gun violence. And when you break that down further, we're talking about a lot of different kinds of gun violence, right? We're talking about mass shootings uh, that, you know, take up a lot of media attention. Um, we're talking about urban gun violence. We're talking about domestic violence. We're talking about suicide, which is a huge number that's really not talked about um, as much as it should be. So why? I think there is good data to speak to that, that much of it has to do with the number of guns that are on our streets, in our homes, um, right? We also have accidental deaths that happen from young people um, finding firearms that aren't locked away um, in their homes. And, you know, it really speaks to, I think, the need for policy um, at the local, state, and federal level to try to, you know, create safer gun laws um, to reduce this, this really public health crisis that we've gotten ourselves into. Full disclosure, I grew up in a community and in a family that were not gun owners. There are plenty of people who uh, owning a gun is second nature to the the culture of their community. Hunting, uh, teaching your children how how to shoot a gun is a part of that 
experience of growing up. How do we find a common balance between those like myself, who the idea of owning a gun is so foreign to us, and those who have the idea of owning a gun is uh, ingrained in what it means to be an American, how do we find a common balance from a policy perspective between those two uh, polar opposites? I think that question is so incredibly well phrased and important to address. There are conflicting cultures in this place we call the United States of America, where our family's heritage and the way that that mythic understanding of self and history end up amplifying something deep within without us even realizing it. So for some families, gun ownership uh, is part of how you get food. Hunting for sport is different than hunting for food. In Jewish terminology, we don't hunt for food. That would render an animal not kosher. And we don't hunt for sport because that's causing pain needlessly for an animal, for a creature. And so from a Jewish traditional standpoint, both of those things don't translate. For an American uh, perspective, there's also a, a very hidden history of racism when it comes to the use of firearms and the ownership because it gives the minority the ability to control vast numbers of people. And so unless we are willing to really explore where this tradition of gun ownership comes from, we're not going to be able to create policies that will actually address in an American way uh, the problems that we face. This is a unique problem, but I would argue it's a unique problem on a mythic level because um, the gun gives people a sense of power, but in fact, it reduces their power. The introduction of weaponry increases the likelihood of harm and death. And um, the idea that I need this to protect myself from my government is not an American perspective. That is an absolute anarchist perspective. And so all of these different understandings are stories that are amplified into our brains by media and lobbying organizations. And they don't continue the work that used to be done by gun organizations to increase gun responsibility. Locking up, as Dorian said, locking up weapons, not only where there are children, but where there's anyone, decreases immediately the number of fatalities. The way that we used to have a notion of the public good and a universal background check, which the vast majority of Americans, the vast majority of gun owners support. All of this seems to be obvious. So the questions I think we need to address are, what makes this not obvious for some? The only way we can address the problem is by helping us all acknowledge that we have one. So if I could bring up then the elephant in the, in the room, the National Rifle Association. Uh, Menachem, you mentioned that the vast majority of gun owners support universal background checks. The NRA, uh, which is the most influential, arguably the most influential lobbying group in the country, does not and, and fights against any policy change and policy reform that could potentially stem the tide of gun violence and mass shootings in the country. How do we understand the NRA arguably not supporting the desires of their members? I think it's a challenging question because the NRA for so long has, had, has held so much power 
um, right, in, in who they represent as gun owners. Um, even the ability to get concealed carry licenses, you have to go through the NRA. Like they have built a structure um, to really empower not the people that they represent, right, but their own ideological perspective on the Second Amendment. Um, and in the last, you know, dozen or so years, you've seen groups like Everytown, like Giffords, like the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, really emerge to counter that perspective. Um, and, you know, not to get too political, but like you're also seeing these groups put their money right behind candidates, just like the NRA has done for decades, who believe in common sense gun reform, right? And when we're talking about common sense gun reform, like we are talking about these policies that the majority of Americans support, over 80%, right, support universal background checks. You've seen in even conservative states, I'm from Florida, right, after Parklands, you saw a sweep of gun reforms pass you know, a legislature that is very conservative and with a Republican governor, right? You have extremist protection orders that are, you know, most known as red flag laws to be able to take firearms away from people that are at risk of hurting themselves or someone else, um, which have been, it, it started in Connecticut a while ago, right? Really, really to, to save people from, uh, from suicide. Um, that's then being, that's that, you know, there's a, a whole host of states that passed that legislation. So I think we at the state level are really seeing movement and we are seeing gun owners join with non-gun owners, right? At trying to figure out ways to create safer communities. At the time of this recording, there's actually a, a lawsuit that was recently filed by Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, against the NRA. Uh, do we think that this is the end of the NRA? And if so, is that what it will take to uh, cause real influential and meaningful change with regards to gun reform? You know, I think that there there is such a thing as wishful thinking. And since Judaism has affirmed in one way or another the belief in the coming of the Messiah, though she may tarry, I think that we have uh, we have faith enough to believe that if the end of the NRA even were imminent, there would still be a challenge before us, and we should still have hope that we can address that next challenge too. In every generation, we're told that there are challenges that are unprecedented. In this week's Torah portion, actually, even though people will be hearing this later, this week's Torah portion, Shelf Team says, when you have a big question, bring it to people you trust, think about it deeply, and find a solution. And the answer won't be in the heavens, it'll be in your hands. So I think that if the Attorney General of New York and her heroic effort um, remains symbolic in nature, we have work. Uh, we have work ahead, and we're up to it. Menachem, I like to ask you, as um, a founder of the Rabbis Against Gun Violence, to talk a little bit about this initiative, uh, when you founded it, and why, and what you believe the role of the rabbinic moral voices in combating this crisis. Um, yeah. 
So in 2012, I was a rabbi in Berkeley, California, uh, sitting in a meeting on December 14th. And um, suddenly a colleague called and I picked up the phone um, and I heard about the shooting in Sandy Hook and was uh, devastated like all of us were at the devastation of children and teachers uh, at another mass shooting at a school and um, responded the way I knew how to at the time, which was writing a prayer and crying my eyes out and preaching. Um, and uh, a good friend of mine, a colleague uh, from a church across the street was leading a delegation to the White House to meet with Vice President Biden's team to combat gun violence. And, um, and I said, yes. And when I signed my name to the thing, I saw that I was the only Jew. So I, I said to Michael, you know, would you like more Jews? <laughs> he said, you can get more Jews? And I said, yes, Jews care. But what I was demonstrating by being willing was exceptions to the rule, right? Because the assumption was actually correct. Jews were not showing up to these spaces. And it's important to remember in the pre-Pittsburgh and pre-Poe days that gun violence felt to many Jews like someone else's issue. And the challenge with that became clear during the moment when I was sitting in the White House with the eight colleagues I was able to gather, um, and you were one of them, uh, the power of being there in a room where there were 90 faith leaders, nine of whom were white, and all of the white leaders were the rabbis. And so when the facilitator for our large group um, asked us to share the gun violence death that affected us the most, every rabbi, with the exception of my father, who had lost a very dear friend to gun violence, every rabbi said, well, I don't have one. And the pastors around the table, for the most part, looked around the table and said, you want me to choose one? And that told me that my reaction to the Sandy Hook massacre, of course, was legitimate. Universes were lost needlessly, but I didn't know anything about anything because I was responding, A, as a white person who had not spent time learning about this issue, B, only paying attention when it was a mass shooting, which I never realized was the minority, the very small minority of all the gun violence deaths that affect us. And C, um, I cried more than I acted. And my responsibility traditionally as a Jew is to pay attention to what happens in this world, to save lives as the primary imperative of Jewish tradition. And so Rabbis Against Gun Violence was my attempt to learn and do better and to work in coalition. And because of my sudden shock, uh, the beginning of my awareness to break the stigma in the Jewish community of talking about gun violence because we just hadn't spoken about it. We had up, quote, other priorities, but this is not someone else's issue. It's not Pittsburgh and therefore this is anti-Semitism. It's Pittsburgh was the 12th attack on an American house of worship by a gun, by a gunman in three years, where was I when all of these other attacks were happening on Sikh temples, mosques, churches? And so Rabbis Against Gun Violence now seeks to amplify all the good being done by coalition organizations to make sure that we can save every life we possibly can. You know, going back to the idea of mass shootings for a second though, every single mass shooting I think 
this is the one that will make a difference. And, and I, I totally hear what you're saying, but I th thought and I felt after Newtown, uh, seeing uh, children so young murdered their whole lives ahead of them, this will be what it takes to, to cause somebody who, whose heart has been hardened, uh, like Pharaoh in many ways for so long, uh, to show emotion, uh, but that didn't happen. And then uh, each time, each mass shooting takes place, the Pulse nightclub shooting, um, the Las Vegas uh, outdoor concert on the Strip, uh, Parkland. I, I thought Parkland, I, I was truly hopeful uh, because it was our, our youth, right? Like, like the prophet Joel says that the old dreams dreams, but it's the youth who sees visions. It's the youth who actually takes those dreams and tries to make it a reality, I, I, in some ways have come closest with the launch of the March for Our Lives whole campaign. And it's our youth who will guide us. And they're the ones who are guiding us through voter engagement and voter registration, that they're the ones who are responsible for a, a slew of new voters in this upcoming election. Dorian, why does it seem that with each mass shooting, we feel like in that moment, this is the one that's going to change it uh, without trying to, to be so cynical. So many of our legislators respond quickly with a thoughts and prayers tweet and, and say, well, we can't uh, politicize a tragedy and nothing ever comes from it. Yeah, so I think the idea of mass shootings is really interesting and I'm glad you asked about it. You know, in 2019, there were over 400 mass shootings in our country and probably only 20 or so made national headlines, right? So I think when we're talking about mass shootings, we're talking about um, some, someone, right, who uses a firearm to injure or, or murder um, at least three people, right? Um, and so this is actually happening almost every day, right? 400, that's more than one a day in 2019, right? And so as we're talking about mass shootings, I think what we're really talking about is like the mass shootings that kill dozens of people, right? That make these national headlines. And it's so much more than that, right? Um, in Chicago, you're seeing mass shootings on a, on a daily basis right now. It's terrible what's happening in you know, cities all across our country. In terms of um, elected officials, right, turning their attention um, to these horrific events and then, you know, life moving on. I think that particularly in the last few years, the, the media and news cycle and our ability to, to grapple with difficult issues has become so challenging, right? There's so much happening in the world. Um, and, and these horrific events are so difficult to even grapple with, right? That it's in our nature to move on and not carry this intense burden. Um, but it's really up to all of us, um, to make our elected officials aware that this is an issue that we care about and we're going to demand that they don't move on. Don't just give thoughts and prayers and do take action um, and support legislation. You know, I, I mentioned earlier at the local, state and federal level, there's so much 
that we can do. You know, and it's not just at the policy level with things that we, you know, think about um, with like an assault weapons ban and background checks, um, but it's also like violence interruption. There are lots of groups on the ground really working um, to try to reduce gun violence, mental health, right? To try to make sure that uh, people that would commit suicide with a firearm, which is the, obviously the most deadly way, right, get the help that they need. Um, there's so much to do, um, and it's, it's up to us to, to make sure that our elected officials um, know that we care. And, and I just add, I mean, that's so well said, all of the, the accountability for public officials, what it means to mobilize and keep paying attention, even when our brains and our hearts pull us to something easier to deal with. I, I had a conversation with an elected official um, uh, about, a, well, now it feels like a million years ago, but I'm pretty sure it was recent. And, um, and it was after, it was after a shooting massacre in El Paso. And he said, what do you think has changed? What do you think will change from this one? And, and I have to say, you know, I, I, I looked at him in the eyes and I said, I don't think anything has changed. Um, and he said to me, uh, he said, I take no comfort in that observation, but I think that there's wisdom in that observation. He said, what's going to take, what it's going to take for real change to happen. And he wasn't speaking intentionally in biblical terms, but I heard it in biblical terms. He said, it's going to take about a generation. It's going to take about a generation so that um, the officials who have failed us will simply they won't be in office anymore, not only because they were defeated, but because they it just aged out. They won't be alive anymore. And I have to say, I processed that, and I was just so scared by its truth and, and paralyzed by my own anger and fear and reactivity. But I thought to myself, of course that's right. Of course that's right. The generation that was redeemed from Egypt couldn't be the warriors to help lead a people forward in the world. And until we have an elected official who grew up with a bulletproof backpack that they wore to school, our Congress people, our representatives, our senators and our presidents won't understand until they were the ones who had to hide in a bathroom stall just to practice it, God forbid, until they are the ones who we look to for guidance how, how can we expect anything different? And maybe what we need most is for those who are in office now to imagine what it is to be a child who has to wear a bulletproof backpack and has heard children's voices calling their parents out of fear because they didn't know this was practice. The trauma that we're causing our children has to change our hearts. Yeah, thank you so much. I think it's, you know, the March for Our Lives movement that was generated after that horrible shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Parkland, I think really shows us kind of the importance of young people getting involved um, and doing so in a different way, right? So these young people, first of all, are voting for the first time in a, in a, in a presidential election. Um, this go around, which is there's right, it's very exciting for them that they've, you know, in 2018 created this big movement. Um, but they're they're not just 
focused on ending mass shootings or ending gun violence in schools, right? They're looking at gun violence as an intersectional issue and banding together with young people that are not like them um, to really lift up all of the forms of gun violence and all of the people impacted, right? Like when they did their their Washington, their March on Washington, it was so powerful, right? There were people from DC, from Parklands, from California, from everywhere, right? That are that are impacted in various ways. And I think that that really shows a different kind of movement and a movement that has so much power behind it. I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, what influence they have uh, in November's election uh, on the state and uh, federal level. Dorian, I wanna come back to something that you said about uh, making changes in legislation on the state level and the impact that could have. I live in New Jersey, which has some of the uh, strongest and strictest gun reform laws, um, thanks to uh, some of the laws that have been implemented by Governor Murphy, uh, by Attorney General Grewal. Um, but I also know that there's the reality of the iron pipeline, as they call it, of I-95, where guns are illegally smuggled across state lines, that a gun that is bought where there are lax gun laws in Pennsylvania and parts of Pennsylvania or in West Virginia, and they make their way to New Jersey, that in some of our largest cities that uh, experience the most gun violence, like Newark and Jersey City, the vast majority, something like 95% of the guns that uh, law enforcement acquire mm -hmm. after these shootings come from out of state come from some of those states. So even if states make changes, how do we empower states to work together to shut down this iron pipeline? Because right, what you do in your backyard actually truly does impact what happens in my backyard. It's a really hard question. Um, I mean, there are consortiums of states that get together um, you know, an attorney's general who try um, to create regional policies to protect the states. But what you find, right, is that these lax states with lax gun laws in the, the center south of our country, um, right, uh, send their guns um, to states with with bigger cities, right, um, and um, and stricter gun laws. So I think in that case, I mean, you really need the federal government to get involved. When you're crossing state lines, we're talking about you know or, uh, departments like the ATF um, to try to reduce this like smuggling and this transmission. Um, and you know, I think. One of the problems is that, you know, in states like West Virginia, there isn't a lot, the, the, the cities just don't exist in the same way, right? Like the urban gun violence doesn't exist, it's so rural. Um, and so their gun violence statistics are different, like their needs are different. Um, but, you know, generating and passing 
common sense gun, uh, gun reforms will also make that state safer, right? And communities in that state safer and families in that state safer. So I think it's also just trying to educate um, and not proselytize, but really educate um, the people in these, these kind of redder states about the importance and how it will actually make their communities safer. I think also the straw purchasing that takes place, right? That uh, it's so different on state to state level. Pennsylvania has a law that prohibits it. But if somebody is going to a gun store and they're buying a, uh, they're filling up the trunk of their car with firearms, by law in some states it's totally allowed and you could believe that they are doing that for their own sake, but there's a very good chance that they're driving from Munster, Indiana, 45 minutes, right? Munster's technically a suburb of Chicago, into Chicago, and what they are actually doing is trafficking and they are perpetuating the gun violence that exists in some of these urban areas. Well, just to offer, you know, Dorian, you were saying not to proselytize and not to, not to preach, but I got to say, that's, that's what I do. You know, I don't know that that's so effective. Sometimes um, using fiery rhetoric backfires and, and puts people on the defensive. So instead of fiery rhetoric, how about we just try to teach the golden rule on a national level? We are our sister's keepers. We are our brother's keepers. And as, as Jesse just said a second ago, you know, what happens in your backyard could take my child's life. And my child and your child deserve to live. Even if we're gonna disagree about some fundamental political things, and even if someone wants to make the argument about state's laws versus federal enforcement, right? The community requires goodwill and involvement in each other's lives, a sense of mutual responsibility. You know, the, the reason, I don't know if, if you, you both saw, but you know, the Iron Pipeline suffered a major loss, thank God, just four weeks ago with a major bust in Queens, New York, of guns that were being smuggled in. And the official said it's because a community member saw something happening and felt responsible. So they called it in. And it takes that kind of sense of responsibility, of obligation for my neighbors, the ones I can see and the ones that I can't. What a, um, one of my favorite philosopher immunologists, Paul Farmer, calls pragmatic solidarity. Because if I think that the problem exists where you are and doesn't touch me where I am, he said, learn from germs. And we're in the middle of the worst living exper experience and experiment to prove his point, which is to say, if you think something that happens in Wuhan, China doesn't affect you in New York City, you're not paying attention. Well, that's something that's invisible. How much more so a bullet? Yeah, as you were speaking, I, 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 my head went straight to the coronavirus, right? And what's happening right now and all of our responsibilities of wearing a mask, not to protect ourselves, but to protect you know, who we're coming in contact with. And then all those other people that they're coming in contact with, right? I mean, it's just, it's so exponential. And I think that this is, um, you know, this is a similar case here as we're talking about these straw purchases. Uh, there's been, you know, a few different kinds of legislation to kind of tackle this. And one that I think passed in Virginia recently was um, only one gun purchase a month, right? 
um, and I think it's being challenged, but there are a lot of people thinking about what are ways of still respecting the Second Amendment um, while also trying to reduce the risk um, that a lot of a lot of this has on our communities and our country. I know that there is a, a bill that the House passed that has been sitting um, on uh, Senator Mitch McConnell's desk that uh, he won't take up in the Senate for um, many months since the beginning of the 116th Congress about taxing uh, gun purchases and heavily taxing ammunition as well. That's if we see something as a uh, public threat, as we see it as part of a health crisis, if we can hike up the tax on cigarettes and tobacco products, let, let people understand uh, the true cost of these firearms. Going back to this pandemic though for a second, I want us to look at some statistics. It's um, the reality is because our kids have not been in school for half the year, that we've seen the fewest school shootings this past school year than our country experienced in decades. That's not to say that gun violence is down. There's certainly been a surge in domestic violence related shootings. And even though these school mass shootings have decreased, there's been a surge during this pandemic in firearm purchases. How do we account for that and how do we explain that? Uh, you know, I, I think the question of explaining sociological phenomena is, is the work of many, many experts in the field. I wouldn't claim any of that scholarship or, you know, data-driven thinking per se. It's not my specialty. But I do, um, do want to make a connection to something you just said a second ago. We can tax cigarettes, but we should know, we should remember historically that that was not an easy fight. Remember how valorous it seemed, how beautiful and sexy it seemed for our heroes and our celebrities to carry cigarettes. What turned the tide was a number of things, but it was not that it was a health crisis. What turned the tide was people who knew it was a health crisis making cigarettes into something ugly. When I was a child, I was four years old, and I saw an ad on TV, a family with a father who was smoking and faded out of the scene. And I remember my father who had been a smoker and then shifted to pipes, this like cherry tobacco pipe, I have a real memory of it. He walked into the room and I was watching the TV and there were his pipes. And I said, Abba, dad, when are you gonna fade away? It was the compelling nature of that kind of, not advertising, I don't wanna reduce it, but honesty, guns, and this is a Jewish traditional response. The Mishnah asks a question, the Mishnah, for those who don't know, it's, a, it's an ancient rabbinic text, the first semblance of what we now call modern Judaism. They ask the question, can you carry a gun on the Sabbath? Because you're not actually allowed to carry things on the Sabbath, but you are actually allowed to wear things that are adornments, like right. you know necklaces. So some people get around the rules of what you can and can't carry by turning it into a piece of clothing or jewelry. So the rabbis ask that about a sword. Can I carry a sword on the Sabbath? And their answer should be, and this is what I, I believe would be a phenomenal strategy moving forward. The answer is no. Weapons are a disgrace. They are ugly. 
They are not beautiful. They are not adornments. You cannot carry them on the Sabbath. That doesn't mean you're not allowed to defend yourself if you're threatened on the Sabbath, but don't you dare think that that weapon which you unfortunately need is a thing of beauty. The problem with so many of those who want to defend the Second Amendment is that they violate the Second Commandment in the process. They turn the gun from something that there are necessities for defense, but they turn it into an idol worthy of worship and adoration. And guns, like cigarettes, are ugly. They're ugly. And that would turn the tide in terms of people's hearts. You, you think that your right to hold this thing is anywhere near as precious as my child's right to breathe? No way. That's unholy. That has nothing to do with being a human being. So be a person, a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew, an atheist, whatever. We have an obligation to reduce the beauty of weaponry in anybody's eyes. And that's going to take a huge concerted effort. And I, I, I can imagine a lot of very ugly images that would be very helpful in the process. I think that's a really powerful statement. Um, looking at gun and gun ownership in this country, at least as it stands right now, as a form of idol worship. And, you know, part of that speaks to the, going back to the NRA, that, well, the NRA is a lobbying group for gun owners. The reality is they are actually a lobbying group for gun manufacturers. And, and those are two very different. You cannot support both ends because if their ultimate goal is just to get more guns out there and to get more people to buy more firearms, then actually they're not doing their job of protecting, responding, and listening to what gun owners want. They're only trying to drive up sales of these gun manufacturers. Yeah, and I think if you look back to uh, you know cigarettes and how that was changed in in the minds um, of Americans, a lot of that was tied to the researchers, right? Who ended up getting the data that was so desperately needed because the manufacturers were saying this is safe, it's great, and they were lying, right? They knew better. Um, And it took the federal government um, and the CDC to be able to find that information, do that research, and then come to Congress and say, this is not partisan. This is a nonpartisan issue. This is about public health and public safety, right? Um, And we so desperately need that with with gun violence. So looking at November's election, um, and we talk about that, funding for a CDC study, what will it take for the CDC to study the gun violence in this country? Um, what will it take to change that sort of legislation in order to do the necessary work to prove what we believe to be true, the impact that this, uh, th- this epidemic is having on our country and on our children? You, you are asking the question that I think we need to face. And Dorian before used the word intersectionality. For us to re- recognize 
that gun violence is part of a messy and well-woven tangle of political efforts that might not even originally have intended to speak to each other and reinforce each other, but with the inability to reform campaign financing comes the ability of unfettered uh, political giving, which influences an idea's power through the politicians who are elected to office, who then answer to the lobby and not to their constituents, and thereby also amplify the messaging of the lobby at their constituents, creating the myth, the lie, that gun reform is a partisan question. If we could unpack all of this and we recognize the interlocking sins of domestic violence and urban gun violence and campaign uh, corruption, if we could talk about all of those things, which of course we're talking about, but not allow any one elected official to, to stop a political effort from addressing them. The fact that there are bills that have been passed by one House of Congress that aren't even being discussed in another, that's not a partisan problem, that's a broken system. We have to be able to have a debate based on the facts, and of course, the facts themselves are not allowed to be researched because of the NRA's power in blocking the CDC from treating gun violence like a health epidemic or from funding studies. There are a million solutions, but they all begin with one very clear solution, which is only vote for people who serve the people. And if whoever claims um, uh, your interests as their mandate blocks the research that would lead to, to fewer gun deaths, I mean, that claim is just false. It's just a lie. That's not a partisan thing but the different parties are being played by the NRA too. So by making gun violence into a wedge issue, you reinforce those who become more beholden to your funding. And so I think we are in a messy, messy cycle of violence and it's gonna require some deep disruption, which is why actually the young people in Parkland, I think have amplified voting registration. I think that's the beginning of the solution. And without people taking responsibility, and by people, I mean me, I, I don't mean to like be preaching to somebody else. If I don't show up to vote this November, I have no right to my own tears because they are shallow and crocodile tears. Only if I show up and put my own self in a position of responsibility to make a difference, only then do I have a right to say any of these things. Yeah, I think November is going to be key. And it's I, I think it's about voting, all of us voting, getting our absentee ballots, standing in the line, however you want to do it, and then making sure that everyone we know is doing the same thing, right? Vote and, and then do something. Um, and make sure that, you know, your vote counts. I think in uh, in 2018, we saw, right, the House flip and a majority um, of members of Congress in the House of Representatives support gun violence prevention measures, ranging right from from moderate um, it, from moderate uh, policies to kind of you know more what people would call extreme um, or progressive policies, and that made a big difference, right? I mean, while many 
of, of the policies that JWI supports and gun violence is, is definitely a part of that. Um, passed the House to, to just lay um, on um, Senator McConnell's desk, there was actually in, in the appropriations process um, a little bit of movement. I think there was about $2 million to allow CDC and NIH to do, um, to, to offer some money for gun violence research, right? I mean, it's a tiny drop in the bucket, right? That is, that is not nearly enough money considering there hasn't been any research done um, for about a decade. But, but voting does actually matter, right? Like they were able to get something done um in this in this appropriations process um and we were able to see these members of congress bring gun violence prevention issues to the forefront right by passing legislation by doing press conferences um and so and, and then at the state level also we've seen um bills pass so i think you know a lot of times people think, you know, it doesn't matter. My vote doesn't really matter. These, these people are all the same, you know, like what's going to change? Um, people that aren't as engaged as the three of us are, right, on these issues and see all the minute changes and some big changes um, that happen as a result of elections. Um, but it really does, like it really does matter. Um, and even if you live in a state where, you know, you know how the state is going to, you know, the electoral college is going to go for the presidency, when you're getting down to state Senate, to either state delegate or state representatives, to your local Congress people, uh, to council members, like a single vote matters, right? We've seen in the last few years, a coin flip to determine, you know, who is your elected official and then who actually leads a chamber in your state, um, which makes a, a massive amount of difference. So I, I guess it's all just to say that do it, <laughs> like Nike says, right? Like it, your vote really does count. Um, and it's it, this, this election is, you know, more important than ever. I so appreciate, I so appreciate your language just in the story. And I, I Thank you. <laughs> Not only because we probably fall into similar patterns, but also because your passion for the democratic process itself, it feels, it's not exclusively Jewish, but it feels so Jewish to me. And, and you know, I'm part of two um, national gun violence prevention task forces, one through Jewish Federations of North America and one through the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. And since I imagine much of, of the audience, Jesse, for your podcast is going to be connected somehow to the Jewish community for us to recognize that this is an issue which the Jewish community has spoken on, has a vested interest in the national welfare, and that it's not that the Torah, I've said this many times, I want to be careful about how I say it, because we have a responsibility to not limit tradition to one partisan outlook. The Torah doesn't say who to vote for, but the Torah absolutely says vote. Sure. Because the rabbis reinforce it, you know, in ancient tradition and certainly today, that we have to seek the welfare of government and society without which people would tear each other apart. And so I encourage all of your listeners, all of the people that we're connected with, to recognize that Judaism is not neutral on these questions. We believe at core that saving one life is saving a universe. And if your one vote can save one life, you just saved a universe. And God forbid you don't. 
God forbid you don't. I appreciate what you're saying, Menachem. I do believe, though, that Torah is subjective uh, and and our understanding and interpretation of Torah. That being said, I much rather, as a rabbi, uh, believe in a Torah, believe in a scriptural tradition that uh, seeks to prevent children from bringing guns to school than one that encourages all teachers to be armed, right? A, a tradition that understands that sometimes gun ownership is a necessity to keep others safe, but not, but not a tradition that celebrates idol worship and treats a AR-15 as a golden calf. That's the kind of subjectivity I could get behind. So with that in mind, if, if you had your way, each of you, what would that common sense gun reform, or as uh, Moms Demand Action calls it, hashtag gun sense, uh, what would that look like? Because I think that there are those who are on the right who say that anybody who supports gun reform is actually trying to abolish the Second Amendment and get rid of the Second Amendment, which truthfully is a whole other conversation. Uh, but what would that common sense gun reform look like in your eyes? For me um, and for JWI, you know, there, there are a host of policies, universal background checks, making sure that the boyfriend loophole is closed um, and, you know, abusers aren't able to access firearms, um, assault weapons ban, you know, there's a whole host, uh, you know, extremist protection orders. Um, but in addition to those things, um, you know, supporting violence interruption programs at a community level, making sure that there are educational opportunities for everybody, making sure that there's mental health care, um, making sure that there's child care. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a whole big issue and gun violence is a piece, right? Um, a piece, a really important piece, a really deadly piece. Um, of making communities safer. Um, but that's that's what I think it looks like for me. I think it looks like passing policies, these macro policies, um, but no single policy or not even all of the policies will prevent all gun deaths. So then it's also starting to think about like what are the root causes of these of, of these gun deaths and how can we really root out the problem and like the need for the people that people feel to feel safe, right? Like, what does that mean? Really unpacking it um, and getting using a firearm to get that sense of safety um, when the data shows that it's actually less safe, right? So, uh, to me, it's it's twofold, um, and that's that's what I hope to see in the future. People tackling all of those all of those issues and problems. Um, let me just chime in and start from a place that isn't you know, common sense policy, which I think Dorian can speak to with precision, uh, let me simply uh, cry a little bit. You know, uh, I believe in the prophetic language that says we should beat our swords into plowshares. And I believe that the poet Yehuda Amichai was correct, that we shouldn't stop there, we should beat the plowshares into musical instruments. So that if someone wants to turn them back, they still have to turn them back into into plowshares first. I think that our children shouldn't have to walk around in fear. 
I shouldn't have to be scared when, when my children go to school. And we shouldn't need a gun violence prevention task force because everyone is each other's neighbor. That's common sense to me. And if any of these policy decisions uh, leads in that direction, they're the ones I'm gonna get behind with all of my faith and all of my soul. And I pray for the day that this conversation makes no sense, that someone looks back, that our children get to look back at this important conversation and they say, why was that necessary? What was wrong that any of this stuff was a fight? So common sense, I think, I think we, have, we have worlds to go before we can get to common sense. But these policy changes could be one step toward the world that was supposed to be already. Manatham, you said that uh, you want to sit for a moment and cry. I can't help but think of the prophet Isaiah, all right, who speaks for God. And when we're asked, what is God doing when God sees uh, humanity's self-destruction, uh, God's creation destroying each other? And Isaiah responds that, that God is weeping that God is not intervening. Where is God in this moment? Where is God in, in whatever your theology is in protecting uh, those who are most vulnerable, whether it be our young children, like the students at Parkland, uh, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, or in Newtown at Sandy Hook, or uh, in Colorado at Columbine, which is 20 years ago already, or those in urban areas which experience gun violence every day, or those who are living in tumultuous situations with a partner that they have not yet left and they fear for their own life and fear for the gun violence that they may be the victim of. Where is God? God is crying because we've created this situation. We've allowed for this situation to happen and it will take us and only us, each of us, to get us out of this situation. Amen. Thank you so much to Dorian Karp and Rabbi Menachem Creditor for joining us in this conversation about the gun violence epidemic in our country and what we can do now, and especially in November, rooted in the ethics and values of our Jewish tradition to stem the tide and really change so that God will no longer be crying, so that we empower ourselves to be God's partners in creation and to be that change we wish to see in the world. You can follow Rabbi Menachem Creditor on Twitter, at Rabbi Creditor, R-A-B-B-I-C-R-E-D-I-T-O-R. -E you can follow UJA Federation of New York on Twitter, at U-J-A-F-E-D-N-Y. You can follow Dorian Karp on Twitter at D-O-R-G-R-E-E-R -E -E and J-W-I, Jewish Women International on Twitter at J-E-W-I-S-H-W-O-M-E-N-I-N-T-L. And of course, you can always follow me on Twitter at J-M-O-L-I-T-Z-K-Y. Our election is rapidly approaching and we'll be here before we know it. Most importantly, as we take away from this conversation, don't forget to vote. Each and every vote is essential. Until next time, take care. <laughs>